Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we're revisiting one of our favorite shows. We asked people, what is Appalachia? There ain't no Appalachian mountains around here. <laughs> well, so that's why I'm out here is... Well, you need to go about 300 miles east up to Tennessee. No, I never heard anybody say anything about Appalachia until you came here. I live in the area of the Appalachian mountain range. Not part of it, but close to it. So I guess you call me a redneck Appalachian. I mean, this is one mountain range that stretches from Georgia to Maine, and the idea that it belongs only to the southern part of the mountain range defies logic to me. So what is Appalachia? Back in 2021, my co-host Caitlin Tan and I explored that question with stories from Mississippi to Pittsburgh. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Today, we're listening back to one of my favorite shows, which first aired back in December. We're asking, what is Appalachia? Politically, it encompasses 423 counties across 13 states. And West Virginia is the only state entirely inside Appalachia. Y'all, that leaves so much room for geographic and cultural variation. Like, Western North Carolina feels entirely different from Southeast Ohio, feels different from Kentucky, and so on. I traveled to part of the region that people don't even recognize as Appalachia, Mississippi. In fact, there are 24 counties in the northeast corner of the state that are included in the Appalachian Regional Commission boundary. So I asked people there, do you identify as Appalachian? I consider myself the worst redneck you've ever seen. And I, mean, I live in the area of the Appalachian mountain range, not part of it, but close to it. So I guess you call me a redneck Appalachian. <laughs> That's Bob Owens, or as locals know him, Pop Owens. I'm near the town of New Hoka, and he's a local watermelon farmer. We're what we call the flatlanders from the Appalachian mountain range. Okay. You know, we pro- our, head, our third or fourth generation ancestors probably did come out of the mountain range coast. Uh, and we migrated all over the country, you know. Okay. So we probably come down from the mountains at one time, but that is before I was born. As Pop and I are chatting, a customer pulls up to buy a melon. So I decide to ask him, does he consider himself living in Appalachia? What's Appalachia? I, so technically, this would be part of the Appalachian region, which is, I guess defined by the Appalachian Mountains and Mm -hmm. then the surrounding areas. But then it's also become kind of a cultural and economic region as well. So growing up around here, did you hear people saying, oh, we live in Appalachia, or we consider ourselves Appalachian? No, I never heard anybody say anything about Appalachia until you came here. But I'm sure if it's a culture, it must have came from here uh, somewhere, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but now, uh, growing up around here is just like growing up around everybody else, you know. That we grow our own food, you know, we... We watch out for each other. Watch out for each other, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like everybody got everybody back some kind of how, you know? Yeah, 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 I yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, that's Appalachian. <laughs> yeah, that could be Appalachian. <laughs> but anyway, I got to go right now, yeah. but it's good to talk hey, to you all. And thank well, you I decided to head a little further north to the birthplace of Elvis, Tupelo. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do, that's all right. I'm in downtown Tupelo, Mississippi, which is technically part of Appalachia. I haven't seen any change in elevation or like mountains or hills or anything. And it feels culturally quite southern, less uh, central Appalachian, I guess. The outskirts are pretty industrial. Obviously, there's a heavy Elvis influence here. There's Elvis murals, Elvis statues, a street called Elvis Presley Drive. The local hardware store prides itself on being where Elvis bought his first guitar. And of course, Elvis's childhood home, which has been turned into a museum. 
At the Elvis Museum, I meet Abby. She works at the front desk. Hi. How's it going? Oh, are you talking about tickets? No, no, no. I actually just have a question. Okay. Um, I actually work for a podcast about Appalachia. Abby says um, she isn't familiar with Mississippi being part of Appalachia. Or for that matter, she isn't familiar with the word Appalachia. Do you guys have like a, like a term for this area of what you would identify as Mississippian or? I, yeah, I guess it'd be like Mississippian, yeah. Walking through the humidity a few blocks from the museum, I meet a family on vacation from Florida. Coming to visit here in Tupelo, Mississippi, were you aware that this is part of Appalachia? No, actually I wasn't. Actually, no. I thought, no, I no. thought it was like the mountains on, up in near West Virginia. Yeah, because they get the Blue Ridge and the uh, Allegheny, right? Mm-hmm. I yeah, actually so. was looking at a map the other day, and I saw that it, like, it designated it down this far when we were planning our trip, and I'm like... That seems really strange to me. I didn't even realize there were like mountains down here. Does it feel flat or does it no. feel? Mm-mm. No, definitely well, not. Again, comparatively. Yeah, mm. once you go below the panhandle in Florida, the only hills you'll see are on golf courses. So <laughs> to someone who's a native Mississippian, they might say, well, this is nothing. So who knows? I don't know. But I, I would consider this hilly. Well, I decided to go to the next town, a little further northeast, deeper into Mississippi Appalachia. In 1,000 feet. Turn right onto East Main Street. I'm driving on the Natchez Trace Parkway. This area is considered the foothills of Appalachia. And for the record, this highway has received some funding from the Appalachian Regional Commission. So the area is lush and green, and it honestly reminds me of West Virginia, just without the hills. I decide to pull over at a rest stop, and I see some folks sitting at a picnic table. I meet a guy who goes by the name Jose. There ain't no Appalachian mountains around here. <laughs> well, so that's why I'm out here is... Well, you need to go about 300 miles each up to Tennessee. It's hot and muggy out, and Jose says he's genuinely stunned about my Appalachia reporting. You need to go back to West Virginia and, and Virginia to... I know. In Kentucky, you know. This, this ain't even Tennessee. This is Mississippi. We, uh, we, we southern bottomland people, yeah. Also at the rest stop is Eli Tooley. He lives nearby and is taking a break from his bike ride. It turns out he does know about Mississippi Appalachia. Yes, we're considered part of the Appalachians. What do you even... think about that? We're not Appalachian. But surely there must be some place in Mississippi that considers itself Appalachia, right? If there is, I figure it's got to be in one of the most northeastern towns, bordered by Tennessee and Alabama. So I decided to check out Iuka. It's considered the gateway to Mississippi. Other than the train passing through, the town is pretty quiet. I don't see any people out and about to interview. But amidst the brick storefronts, I do find one door open. Oh, excuse me. Hi. Um, I, I work for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. I meet Henry and Carolyn Terry. I thought it was going to be about the tornado. Oh. <laughs> We've been cleaning up. After, yeah, we're was there a ter- bad? Two yeah, tornadoes yeah. hit Saturday. We could go today. Two tornadoes. Helping them clean up is Andrew Bassford. He lives a few miles south of Iuka. I wouldn't consider this Appalachian, no. Um, I think we're a little too far west for that, but we don't consider ourselves Appalachians around here. It's not something that, a word that we really associate with ourselves, I guess. We're just plain old Southerners. How would you describe to people listening um, what, what the landscape looks like around here? It's beautiful. It's, um, lots of old trees. It's, I mean, it's beautiful, but there's not, like, I would consider Appalachia more towards the Birmingham area where you're getting into the mountains and stuff. Um, but here, it's pretty flat. The tallest point in Mississippi is right down the street, Woodall Mountain, and it's pretty much a hill. And that's the tallest spot in the whole state of Mississippi. 
Woodall Mountain is at 806 feet in elevation. For reference, the highest point in North Carolina, Mount Mitchell, is more than 6,600 feet in elevation. So that means Mount Mitchell is eight times higher than Woodall Mountain. So if there aren't really any mountains there, and people I talk to don't really think of themselves as Appalachian, why is it considered part of Appalachia? Justin Randolph had the same question. He's a U.S. history professor at Texas State University. And in fact, the only people I've ever heard uh, or talked to about it who knew were also in the historical profession. And for them, it just sort of exists as a quaint um, sort of, you know, isn't that comical? Isn't that funny thing? But what sent me off was uh, on a mission to figure out more was to sort of um, see if it was actually a little more than just comical. Um, and to see what the roots were and what the lasting impact had been. Randolph details what he found in his article called The Making of Appalachian Mississippi. He takes us to the mid-1960s. That's when President Lyndon B. Johnson introduced the so-called War on Poverty. It was legislation that sought to expand social welfare and help to create the ARC. And some localities were eager for the money, including ones in Mississippi. But Randolph argues that there was another factor in Mississippi's inclusion in the ARC. Race. I recently spoke with him, and he started off describing how lawmakers made the case for the designation in the 1960s. It's a flawed argument. They actually very crudely take a road atlas, and they pencil in hills and mountains on East Mississippi. And they submit that map to the Congress. It is reproduced in the congressional record uh, for all to see, like this great forgery showing that Mississippi actually had this terrain in common with Northeast Alabama or Western North Carolina. They made these arguments on paper and you get them in the Congress and they're having to defend themselves. And so when you have a lawmaker saying, but what's the difference between you and the Delta, which is known for its black culture and has become an American poster child for poverty, these white supremacist segregationists believe it's race. And they come very close to saying in the congressional record that The reason why we can't make common cause is because people in the Delta are black and we are trying to control this money. And so they use euphemisms like we don't think like people in the Delta. They use euphemisms like poverty is different in the Delta, (laughs) but people call them out on the ridiculousness of the claim that Mississippi is in Appalachia. A senator from Kentucky produces a U.S. geological survey map of Appalachia that shows that the mountains end around Birmingham. And they're like, how can you explain this? How, how could you possibly claim? And the, the claim that they make over and over again is that there is some sort of commonality with the culture and the terrain in North Mississippi and In my opinion, that just boils down to whiteness. That's what they think they're talking about. And ultimately, I mean, they, even with that pushback, they still prevailed. Uh, Why do you think that is? Oh, well, this is the great breakdown in any sort of partisan argument about American history on some things is that both parties are in real agreement when it comes down to some things. And even if Gerald Ford, who is the minority leader in the U.S. House at the time, stands on the floor and makes jokes about how we're letting Mississippi into Appalachia now, right? It it provides plenty of sound bites for the major papers the next day, but there's no serious opposition that takes hold. So just to kind of summarize So these lawmakers and officials from 
the Mississippi area, the idea to get those counties to be part of the ARC was to get that federal funding and the idea was that money would stay somewhat in white hands, I guess in a way continue kind of segregation. Yeah, it was to keep the federal dollars flowing, but to be in complete control of them. And so whereas Black Southerners were interested in childcare programs and jobs programs and cooperative agriculture, white Southerners were interested in a very elite sort of infrastructure building. Infrastructure building that would ultimately only make their lives better, that would make it easier, for instance, with those roads. Those were to make commerce easier. They built water sport recreation parks. They built industrial parks with the idea that they would invite this industrialization that Southern states had always been left out of. And the big one that I kept finding over and over again, they wanted to build airports. And of course, if you think about the difference in the type of person who is using a catfish cooperative to maybe make money and to get fresh fish to eat versus the kind of person who's going to be flying out of an airport in East Mississippi in, say, the early 1970s when a great deal of this money starts rolling in. You know, it's just two different worlds. And what's interesting is like when you're talking about using that money to build infrastructure and ways to try to bring things to Mississippi and connect it to other parts of the world. I mean, at face value, that doesn't sound so bad, right? But then what's kind of leaves a bad taste in one's mouth is that the backdrop of this being during the civil rights movement and that all of these lawmakers were opposed to desegregation. And so I'm I'm trying to get to the root of, of why that it does, it, it, one feels unsettled by it. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you 100%. And in some ways, it is the epitome of the ARC. It's the epitome of the Appalachian Regional Commission doing exactly what they said at the beginning. It was really about building infrastructure to connect it and feasibly to help these regions become self-sufficient in a way that they've never been. And so in some ways, like what happens in Mississippi is exactly what they imagined it could be. But that's if you completely evacuate the scenario from the political reality on the ground, right? Where you have people in the heart of the civil rights movement and after, and you say, well, people are still there on the ground, are still fighting for political power that was supposed to come with the right to vote but that they didn't see any results from. That's when you start to see, okay, this was not just like a strange, you know, quaint plugging into a system that other isolated parts of the United States were enjoying already. This was yet another way to reconsolidate political power where it was being threatened by new actors and new political coalitions. So, Justin, how do you think that has affected things now some 50, 60 years later? Are these counties doing better that became part of the ARC? Did it give them an upper hand? Did it it continue to kind of segregate people? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to say. Like, to get to any sort of concrete yes no better worse thing would be difficult but i can say that the development that has occurred has largely occurred without the input of the populations that for instance the war on poverty hoped to bring to the table right the idea that poor and working class 
generally disfranchised people would have a say in what the economic outlook for the place they live would be. Right? That was taken off the table. And it's not to say that it's like totally segregated. In fact, the NAACP in the state of Mississippi supported Mississippi's addition to the Appalachian Regional Commission on the basis that, of course, like any more money would be would be great, right? We're not going to like cut ourselves off from any new money. But, you know, they did so without any sort of expectation that the war on poverty money would also go away, which it did. And, you know, it's just for me, it's, it's the great what might have been question because there was a moment when it was absolutely expected that formerly excluded people would be able to come together and dictate what their economy would be. Why? Because there's so much wealth in the United States. Of course, it was fine that the war on poverty funding was coming into the state. It was a drop in the bucket. But, you know, that moment passed and it passed. Well, passed is way too passive, right? It was hastened out by people like the white Mississippians, people I call the, you know, Appalachian Mississippians. That was Texas State University professor Justin Randolph. I reached out to the Appalachian Regional Commission after I spoke with Randolph. A staff person with the agency emailed a statement saying the boundaries and definition of Appalachia were established by and can only be changed by an act of Congress. Mississippi isn't the only place where Appalachia's boundaries get squishy. We'll hear more on how Appalachia's borders were drawn up in just a bit. And why some parts of Virginia feel like they should be part of Appalachia, but they didn't end up in the ARC's definition. Why not? Because I would try to explain to my students these maps that we have that claim some counties in Virginia as Appalachian and some counties in Virginia as not Appalachian. And the students in front of me are wondering why they're not included. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. You can walk to the other side of this town. You can drive. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. In the Greenbrier Valley. We heard earlier about the Appalachian Regional Commission and how it was created in 1965 as part of LBJ's War on Poverty. Some localities were clamoring to get in, but on the eastern edge of Appalachia, something else was going on. The ARC's boundary through Virginia leaves out Roanoke, which is a major gateway into the mountains. And it leaves out the Shenandoah Valley, which is basically this long valley that runs southwest down Virginia's western edge, with the Blue Ridge on one side and the Alleghenies on the other. Those ranges are both part of the Appalachian Mountains. The Shenandoah Valley is also part of this larger geologic feature called the Great Valley that was the primary migration route for European settlers beginning in the mid-1700s. They came from Philadelphia and the Northeast, down the Great Valley, and then at different points could cut off into deeper parts of Appalachia, what's now West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee. So if Roanoke and the Shenandoah Valley seem like Appalachia, why aren't they part of the Appalachian Regional Commission? As a journalist, I've covered parts of this region for almost 20 years, and that question gnawed at me. So I decided to dig into it, and it turns out there's more to it than just geography. Catherine Brown is a Shenandoah Valley historian. 
She says, yes, if you're talking geography, the valley might be considered Appalachia. But its history seems to be so different from that of much of Appalachia. I think the the kind of very successful uh, farming culture that developed in the Shenandoah Valley differed from what was possible for a lot of the small landholders that were in in many areas of Appalachia. Also, the Shenandoah Valley was not so tied to extractive industries. By extractive industries, she's mostly talking about coal. The Shenandoah Valley is known for its farming, not its mines. But there are a lot of parts of Appalachia that don't have coal mines. So I also spoke with another Shenandoah Valley historian. Nancy Sorrells actually works with Catherine Brown on a small publishing imprint that makes local history books. Sorrells can see the geographic connections between the Shenandoah Valley and Appalachia, but she also sees class divisions. I think there's always been, if you go back historically, more of a difference, not between what's Shenandoah Valley and what's Appalachia, but, but what is the valley folk and the, and the mountain folk. That dynamic sounds awfully familiar to me. It's kind of like hillers and creakers. The Shenandoah Valley clearly has its own specific dynamic. But it's got the general theme that where you live determines whether you're rich or poor. Though I found a recent academic journal that was written all about this. It's titled Mapping Appalachia's Boundaries. And Emily Satterwhite is one of its co-authors. She's also director of the Appalachian Studies program at Virginia Tech. I asked her about what sparked her interest in figuring this out. Because I would try to explain to my students these maps that we have that claim some counties in Virginia as Appalachian and some counties in Virginia as not Appalachian, and the students in front of me are wondering why they're not included. So why weren't they? Well, let's go back to the creation of the Appalachian Regional Commission for a minute. Remember, this came in 1965 as part of a big government spending initiative, the War on Poverty. Our aim is not only to relieve the symptom of poverty, but to cure it, and above all, to prevent it. This is from Lyndon B. Johnson's State of the Union speech in 1964. No single piece of legislation, however, is going to suffice. We will launch a special effort in the chronically distressed areas of Appalachia. If you watch today's debates in Congress over big spending packages, you can easily find opposition to those proposals by people who don't think the federal government should be spending so much money. The same thing was going on in the 60s, too. Conservative Republicans and Southern Democrats were largely opposed to such programs. And the Virginia counties that weren't drawn into Appalachia, they happened to be represented by one of each, Republican Congressman Richard Poff and Democrat John Marsh Jr. Richard Poff, who has a federal building named after him in Roanoke, deliberately, quote, had his district cut out of official Appalachia as a protest against government activism. That's a line from the 2002 book Appalachia, A History by John Alexander Williams. So there it is. It's politics. Now, we should say there were counties in their districts that were drawn into the ARC, like Allegheny County, where I grew up. And it wasn't just one or two congressmen who opposed this. Local officials and civic boosters elsewhere were skeptical too. For a lot of them, the problem was just as much about the images that came out of Appalachia during the push for the war on poverty. These images were stark, often black and white, showing children with dirty faces, sitting on porches of rundown houses. These photos basically entrenched the stereotype that a lot of people still have about Appalachia as a rundown, used up old region riddled with poverty and suffering. There were folks in cities like Roanoke, Knoxville, even Charleston, West Virginia, who didn't want to be associated with that. Emily Satterwhite wonders if that's really the core reason why these places were drawn out. I haven't been able to get to the bottom of whether we disagree with the philosophy 
is really just code for, we don't want you to call us Appalachian. So this question of what's Appalachia and what's not, it might seem like the answer is on a map, but there's more to it than that. Emily Satterwhite started her exploration of Appalachia's boundaries by watching her students process this question of what is Appalachia and how it applied to where they grew up. And over the course of the class, she watched them wrestle with the region's history and culture. Ultimately, that process helped them come to terms with where they live and who they are. One of the things that I'm proud of my students for is coming into Intro to Appalachian Studies thinking they know what Appalachia is and that they're not part of it. But to, to, come, to come to the end of the semester affirming Appalachianness without celebrating it, without romanticizing it or whitewashing it or sugarcoating it. And somehow, through getting that deeper knowledge of the region coming out the other end, saying, Appalachia isn't what I thought it was. It's better in some ways, maybe worse in some ways, but it's definitely more nuanced and complicated, and I'm Appalachian. And so am I. How about you? Do you live in the Shenandoah Valley or Roanoke? Would you call yourself an Appalachian? We want to hear from you and others in places that might or might not be Appalachia. Send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Next, let's head to suburban Atlanta. The ARC defines 37 counties inside Georgia as part of Appalachia. The state marks the southernmost end of the Appalachian Trail, but it's a big, diverse state. We wanted to see how closely Georgians identify with Appalachia. We sent reporter Jess Mador to Appalachian, Georgia, to investigate the question. She has the story from here. I started in the small city of Norcross in Gwinnett County near Atlanta. Historic Norcross is a small district bisected by railroad tracks, lined with brick storefront shops and restored Victorian homes. What would you say if I told you that this county was part of Appalachia? Did you know that? I did not know that. It wouldn't surprise me, but I didn't know it. What comes to mind when you think of Appalachia or North Georgia? Mountains and hills. Yeah, the Appalachian Trail. What do you think of when you hear the word Appalachia? Kentucky and Tennessee, more mountainous, a lot of folk music. That's kind of what I think of. West Virginia, rolling hills, coal mining. What do you think the stereotypes are that we often hear about Appalachia? Rural, hardworking, poor. I would think the stereotype is like poor hillbillies scrapping along. Yeah, I mean, the, the stereotypes, you've got the, the carpet bag and Yankees living in Atlanta, living it up, and the uneducated, dumb, hick hillbillies up there, you know, shooting everybody and doing moonshine. So I mean, there's all kinds of stereotypes, but there's always a tiny grain of truth and a whole lot of lie in it. So you know, you. I think sometimes it can keep going on even without ill intent. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, but all my cousins were in Ohio. We'd visit in the summer, and the same thing. They're like, oh, y'all have shoes on. They just assume because we're hillbillies from Kentucky, we weren't around barefoot all day. These are cousins that we see every year. So there was no malicious intent, but that's just what they thought it was going to be like, you know? What do you think can get us over those kinds of arguments on both sides? You have to just have a lot of people coming together and meeting and getting to know each other. As long as there's a separation, you're going to make up stories because you don't understand it. That's really the key. How would you describe this little town? It is uh, founded in 1870, and it is a railroad town, very diverse, converting from older to to younger people. Were you aware that this is considered part of Appalachia? Part of Appalachia? Okay. Did you know that? No. No. No, I did not. How would you describe this little town? So we are in historic Norcross, Georgia. I mean, I know the Appalachian Trail comes through Georgia and that a lot of people walk that. If we were further north, I would have said, oh yeah, from this particular location, no. Do you have any reaction to knowing this now? What I'm going to do is have a second look at a map of our United States and really look at where Appalachia is. 
So it's educational to know. So perhaps I'm just not as acutely attuned living in Norcross because it seems Atlanta suburb-esque to me. And so now that I have this new piece of information about Appalachia, I will look again at where am I historically oriented in the world. Many of the people I spoke with for this story told me they'd like to see more opportunities for North Georgians and people in the rest of the state to come together. And whether they were aware of Georgia's Appalachian boundaries or not, many say more cultural exchange could also go a long way in helping Georgia overcome its polarizing political divide. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jess Mador. That was reporter Jess Mador in North Georgia. Well, clearly people have lots of different views on what's inside and outside Appalachia. It really depends on who you ask and where you are. And it only gets more complicated in Pittsburgh, Appalachia's largest city. It's not just a question of whether Pittsburgh is Appalachian, but also, is it Midwestern, Northeastern, Rust Belt? The answer gets thorny quick as our producer Roxy Todd found out. When we asked people to tell us if they consider Pittsburgh a part of Appalachia, about half said something like this. I definitely do not feel that I am Appalachian culturally. That's Mark Yovanovitch, who grew up just outside Pittsburgh's city limits in the Woodland Hills area. Personally, I would consider the city of Pittsburgh as sort of like a mini New York City to an extent, like very northeastern. I know people from New York City in the northeast would definitely not consider Pittsburgh the northeast. Um, they might even consider us almost Midwest. I definitely don't think we're Midwest either. So, yeah, I think we're like a mini New York City, but most realistically, I guess we'd probably be lumped in as like a Rust Belt city, which makes enough sense, but definitely not Appalachian culturally. This is the crux of why it's so difficult to define Pittsburgh. The city is many things. It's made up of all these little neighborhoods that historically had immigrants from places like Germany and Poland. It's an industrial Rust Belt city. It's partly Midwestern. And as for whether it can call itself a little New York... It always had a sore spot. It wasn't New York. Sabina Dietrich is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. She says as Pittsburgh was growing in the early 1900s, upper-class elites always felt they had something to prove. The city wasn't, and never would be, as important in the eyes of the nation compared with New York City. The difference in Pittsburgh is it didn't grow after 1920, period. When immigration was opened in 1965, when the United States opened its borders again after closing them in the 1920s, People weren't flocking to Pittsburgh because there weren't any jobs here. Pittsburghers were seeing their city shrink and younger generations move away. And as the city got smaller, it was even more difficult to compare Pittsburgh with larger cities like New York. On the flip side, over the border in Chester, West Virginia, Susan Maslowski grew up in Pittsburgh's shadow. I grew up in the northernmost town in West Virginia, which is even farther northwest of Pittsburgh. And we did all of our shopping and all of our entertainment, everything that we did centered around Pittsburgh. That was where, where we went. Now, living in West Virginia and that close to Pittsburgh, I do consider myself Appalachian. For Mislowski, being Appalachian was an identity she claimed. And I'm wondering if it didn't have something to do with the fact that, you know, we were taught West Virginia history from like the fourth grade until the eighth grade. And that was just a part of it. Maslowski's feeling that Pittsburgh is Appalachian is not just something people in West Virginia believe. When we put a call out on social media asking for perspectives, we heard from several Pittsburghers who agree, including Brian O'Neill, who wrote a book about Pittsburgh called The Paris of Appalachia. My original title for the book was I Love Pittsburgh Like a Brother and My Brother Drives Me Nuts. But when I turned it in to my editor, she said, you know, your title is really here on, I don't know what it was, page three of, of the book, where I, I referred to what was at the time this derisive sort of semi-put-down of Pittsburgh, like people called it ads, the Paris of Appalachia, like, you know, sexiest guy in the Big Bang Theory or something, you know. And I couldn't figure out why that should be a put-down, because Paris is nice, and Appalachia is a beautiful part of the world, and if we 
were called the Paris of the Rockies, we wouldn't run from that. So why would we run from this? Why don't we embrace it? So that became the title of my book. What What is your argument for why you consider it a part of Appalachia? I know you pronounce it Appalachia. Appalachia. How do you say Appalachia? Yeah, well, I, I, I say Appalachia. You know, we're right at the point. I think the Mason-Dixon line, I think below the Mason-Dixon line, it's Appalachia, largely. People pronounce it that way. And I think above the Mason-Dixon line, it's Appalachia. We're very close to the Mason-Dixon line. It's an hour south of us. So we, we get both pronunciations here. But the reason I say we're in Appalachia or Appalachia is because we obviously are. Look around. There are so many neighborhoods in Pittsburgh that are like Polish Hill or Brighton Heights or Summer Hill. You know, these hills aren't on loan from Morgantown. They're ours. And there are people in Pittsburgh living at a higher elevation than some people in Morgantown or who are in the valleys down close to the river. I mean, this is one mountain range that stretches from Georgia to Maine. And the idea that it belongs only to the southern part of the mountain range defies logic to me. And what's the response been from people in Pittsburgh to the idea that Pittsburgh is, in your opinion, Appalachia? Well, since I wrote the book, which I, it came out in 2009, so it's been around a while, and it's done pretty well. I think people have come around to the idea. You know, they didn't have much reason to think about it before, but I guess I put it in their face. I didn't coin the term. As I said, it it had been used before. A lot of people were using it as a as a sneering kind of put-down. But uh, now I don't think it's used that way. There's people wearing Paris of Appalachia T-shirts now, and there, there are keychains. I'm not getting any of that money, but it makes me smile. Maybe people in Pittsburgh are coming around to this idea that they are Appalachian. One Pittsburgher who says he changed his mind is Ben Cussero. I think the main reason why Pittsburghers don't see themselves as a part of Appalachia is because they only see Appalachia as one thing. Right? They only see Appalachia as the stereotype of poor mountain folk. What changed his own perception was learning that his ancestors actually smuggled whiskey into Pittsburgh from West Virginia. They transported it by canoe over the Mon River. Once I realized that, I started to do more research and get more interested in how Pittsburgh is connected to the rest of our region rather than being secluded. So is Pittsburgh a part of Appalachia? Appalachia, the Rust Belt, or the Midwest, or all the above. Likely, Pittsburghers won't ever claim just one identity. Maybe that's a good thing. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. Thanks to Katie Blackley and WESA News in Pittsburgh for helping us with that story. Listeners in Pittsburgh, we'd love to hear from you. Do you feel Appalachian? And to the rest of you, do you consider Pittsburgh Appalachia? Send us a note. We're at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. We're also on Twitter, at InAppalachia. Got that sweet mountain soul down in my bones. I can't feel it when I sing them lonesome songs. Now, there's one place in Appalachia where there's no question, it's Appalachia. This place is a town in southwest Virginia, and its name? Appalachia. Back in 2015, we asked reporter Jade Arthur Holtz to check it out. Did you know there is a town in Appalachia called Appalachia? We spoke with Annika Ever regarding this town of about 1700 in Wise County, Virginia. My name is Annika Ever. I'm from St. Paul, Virginia, which is in Wise County. That's also the county where the town of Appalachia, Virginia, is located. Uh, I haven't really heard any folklore. Um, Everything that I've heard is just that Appalachia got its name because of the Appalachian Mountains. Although I have heard the nickname, um, the Magic City of Wise County. I don't know where that nickname came from, and I don't know anybody in modern times who, who uses that term, but I have seen that in some 
historical records. Maybe the reason the town was called the Magical City is because it's located in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. It is located with mountains all around it, kind of like in a little tiny valley. Um, it's a coal mining community, or it was a coal mining community, so some of the houses still have that coal camp look to them. Uh, but in general, it looks like any other small town in America. Um, they have swimming pool and grocery store and you know, everything every other small town has. It's very pretty, actually, all around it, the mountains and everything. If you're not familiar with Wise County, I encourage people to come visit us. We have uh, beautiful natural resources, and we're into ecotourism, and the river um, that runs through my hometown is actually one of the most biodiverse rivers in the world. Is it the Clinch River? Yes, it is. It is, yeah. Now for the big question. How do the people of Wise County, Virginia, pronounce the name of this little town in the middle of the mountains? I've never heard anyone from our area, from Appalachia, call it anything other than Appalachia. When I hear someone say Appalachia or Appalachia or however they pronounce it, to me that signifies that person is not from the Appalachian region. Yeah, that seems to be the case. It seems like outsiders always pronounce it different than we do, yes. which is pretty interesting. The world all about me, but they can't even pronounce my name I make my home in mountain people my spirit flowing to their veins my soul is with them forever Appalachia is my name my soul will live with them forever Jade Arthur Holt spoke with Annika Ever back in 2015. The music was by Alan Cathead Johnston of McDowell County, and it's a song he wrote about his home in the middle of Appalachia. We've talked a lot about what is Appalachia today. Southern or northern, mountains or foothills, in or out. But what about people's ideas about the city and the country, urban and rural? For our final story, we're going to Martinsburg, West Virginia, over in the eastern panhandle, where there's a lot of folks who commute to work in D.C. We sent reporter Shepard Snyder to talk with people there. He started by asking, do you consider yourself Appalachian? I think of West Virginia, honestly, when I think of Appalachia. Um, it's my hometown. It's what I'm always used to. Um, anytime anybody brings it up, I just think West Virginia is the picture of Appalachia and its history. I can see where people think we're more urban, especially like when you get into like Martinsburg and stuff like that, where more shops and more townhomes and houses are coming up. I don't think it's the same kind of Appalachia as you find in the mountains or um, in you know deep West Virginia. But there are certainly Appalachians living here, and there are customs and traditions that, you know, echo those ways. And yeah, there are people who are newer to the region than I am, and that are shaping it. So yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question. Yeah, so the word is Appalachia. Um, I'll tell you, when I grew up in New York, uh, you know, we learned the mountain ranges as the the Rockies and the Appalachians. So I know that that's, uh, you know, not the most popular pronunciation, but I always say, hey, that's how we pronounced it there. When I think about Appalachia, and I've, you know, written and, and taught some Appalachian, uh, written some scholarship about Appalachian literature and taught Appalachian literature, I think about place. I think about a specific place where the people feel very connected to it and to each other. A place that's often misrepresented and misunderstood. Um, and that we would be better off listening to the people from Appalachia tell us what it is than trying to tell them what it means. So I see the word Appalachia, and I automatically want to think about the pronunciation of that word Appalachia. A lot of out-towners say Appalachia, and the people that live around here know and think it's Appalachia. 
And my the very first memory that comes to mind is there's this composer named um, Aaron Copeland who uh, was also interested in this. He was pronouncing it Appalachia his whole life until he came to the area and learned it was pronounced Appalachia way after Appalachian Spring was composed. Uh, the mount. I think about the mountains. I do, and the space. But there's a lot of darkness too underneath all of it. I think it's the light. The way the light gets caught on the trees and the mountains and the shadows beneath and the rivers. I, I don't know. Like a big part of me, like I feel like gets tugged and pulled out, and I want to go explore and discover and yearn for something I can't quite put my finger on. But where I live specifically, it's more rural and more mountains, lands. So that's what I love about where I live. I would never want to live in the inner like cities of the Eastern Panhandle. I love being on the country too much. If you haven't been, come visit because it's amazing. It's beautiful and you won't regret it. I love Appalachia and I love West Virginia. That was Sierra Godfrey, a student at Shepherd University. Those also interviewed were Shepherdstown local Peter Harmon, and Shepherd University English professor Heidi Hanrahan. Reporter Shepard Snyder produced that story. So, Caitlin, I gotta ask, where do you stand on pronouncing Appalachia? Well, it's actually kind of funny. So, I'm obviously not from Appalachia. And so before I moved out to West Virginia, I always said Appalachia. That was the only way I'd ever heard it out West. Um, but I quickly realized that more commonly people say Appalachia. And so now that's what I say. I say Appalachia. I've heard plenty of folks who say it both ways. And probably growing up, I maybe said it both ways too. But at some point, Appalachia kind of sunk in. And that's what I stuck with. But I did have a point a few years ago where I felt like a lot of people were getting angry about the pronunciation. And I think a lot of folks who say Appalachia aren't necessarily being dismissive. That's just the way they've heard it. So I just generally try not to accent shame people or make them feel bad for trying to engage in conversation. Unless they're making fun of my accent. (laughs) Then it's okay to fight fire with fire. Well, until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia or Appalachia or whatever you say. See y'all next time. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John Wyatt, John R. Miller, Alan Cathead Johnston, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd originally produced this episode. Bill Lynch is our current producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Or leave a message at West Virginia Public Broadcasting on Facebook. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.